If you have a Bible, I'll encourage you to open to the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 1. This is week 3 in our study through the book of Titus. The last couple of weeks, we made the observation that Titus is part of a group of books. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are often grouped together, and we refer to them as a group as the pastoral epistles. They're letters that Paul wrote not to churches, but to the pastors of churches. This particular pastor epistle, Titus, has four sections. It's a simple letter. We'll break it down into four parts. There's an introduction, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. We've covered that. There's a section about right leadership. We've spent last week and this week and a few more weeks talking about right leadership as we move forward, and then we'll talk about right doctrine and right living. And I just want to make the observation that these letters, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, are very helpful for churches like ours in thinking about what the role of a pastor is. What is the job description for an elder, a pastor, an overseer? There's all sorts of ideas floating around out in the world today about what a pastor ought to do and what the job description for a pastor ought to look like. Pastors need to know what the Bible has to say about their responsibilities, and churches need to know what to expect biblically from their pastors. And I promise you this, if you get online and we sit down and we look at job postings for pastoral openings across the United States and we read those job descriptions, I can tell you without knowing anything about the church, where it is, how big it is, how small it is, what the style of the church is, anything like that, just by reading the job description for a pastor, you can tell an awful lot about a church, for good or for bad. And one of the things you will find as you read job descriptions for pastors is that many churches have not paid much attention to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus in thinking through what it is that a pastor is supposed to do and what it is that they're called to lead, uh, how they're called to lead a church. So, one of the things we've observed is Titus 1.5, which says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to put the churches on the island of Crete into order. And the first step in that is right leadership. Now, Corey preached last week on Titus 1, 5 to 9, and I gave him a difficult passage. Difficult not in the sense that there's anything particularly hard to understand, but difficult in that there's an awful lot that you could say about those verses, Titus 1, 5 to 9. And as Corey was preparing and we were discussing the passage, one of the things I said to him as he was thinking through what to say and what not to say, I said, in any sermon, there are things that you could say that you just don't have time to say because sermons have to end at some point. You may feel like when you sit in this room, sermons are never going to end. But to my record, to my knowledge, they have all ended at some point in time. You've got to go to Sunday school. If you're in the late service, you've got to go to Rosa's. So at some point, sermons have to end, and you can't say everything that you might say about a particular passage. And so no fault to what Corey shared last week at all. I thought he did an amazing job walking us through a complex, detailed passage. I have the luxury this week of having two verses, not a lot of verses, just two verses, 
And so I want to just add one or two or three little thoughts about elders in a church because what we're talking about this morning is still the responsibility of elders within a church. So let me just add on a few thoughts for your consideration. Number one, when you think about the appointing of elders in a church, age is not the primary consideration. Don't let the word elder throw you. Don't think, okay, we're only looking for men who have started receiving AARP benefits in the mail. We're only looking for people who are on Social Security. The word elder shouldn't throw you. Now, age should probably be a consideration. If you come to the second service, we have this front row up here devoted to the the three and four-year-olds, and they're up here dancing. We're probably not going to ask any of them to serve as elders. And age is a function in that, not just their love for dancing, but age is a function in that. But understand that age is not the primary consideration when you're looking at somebody who's qualified to serve as an elder. In fact, in Timothy and Titus, when the qualifications are laid out, yes, the title elder is used, but there's no age limit. When you read in 1 Timothy, it's clear that Timothy was a young man, and it sure sounds like he was the lead elder at the church in Ephesus. And Paul says, do not let them look down on you or despise you because of your age. There are other things that ought to have greater weight than age when considering somebody for the position of elder. Things like character, things like godliness, things like holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, things like being able and capable to teach the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So number one, don't let the the word elder throw you. Number two... I want you to understand that there are several words used in the New Testament and they're used interchangeably to refer to the same group of people. And so those words are elder, which in the Greek is presbyteros. You can hear the word Presbyterian in that word. There's a word overseer, episkopos. You can hear the word episcopalian in that word. And then there's the word pastor or shepherd, which is the Greek word poimen. And what I'm saying to you is that when you read in Acts and you read in Timothy and you read in Titus and all the other epistles, these words are used interchangeably. They're used interchangeably right here in in, uh, Titus chapter 1 in the verses we looked at last week. These all, all these terms, they all refer to the same office, the group of men called to lead a church. To put it into order. Number three, I just want to make the simple observation that the norm in the New Testament is a plurality of elders, pastors, overseers leading the church. That's the norm. And I don't think that's debatable at all. We can have discussions about how churches are organized, but in the New Testament, this is the norm. The norm is not that a bunch of committees run a church. It's not to say you can't have committees, but that's not the norm in the New Testament. The norm is not that a board, a board of directors, runs a church. It's not to say you can't have a board. Just say that's not the norm in the New Testament. The norm in the New Testament is not that you have one single senior pastor who makes all the decisions and does all the deciding. It's not to say you can't have one person who leads the group of elders as part of that group, but to say the norm is that the church is led by a plurality, a group of men who work together in teaching and giving direction to the church. So just a few things to think about as you consider what uh, Paul says to Timothy about elders. Now, 
our passage, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Here's the big idea as we continue to think about elders and what we talked about last week. The elders of a church are responsible for silencing false teachers. The elders of a church are responsible for silencing false teachers. You may fill that blank in as a non-elder in our church and say, why don't you guys just talk about this at elders meeting? It's for elders. Why do I need to know this? Well, elders certainly need to know it and they need to understand this responsibility, but you as a member of a church need to know what to expect from your elders. And one of the verses that Corey referred to last week from the book of Hebrews talked about the importance of church members following the leadership that God has put in place in their church when that leadership is biblical and godly. Not over a cliff, not into sin, but following leadership that is biblical and godly. Which means if the responsibility of elders is silencing false teachers, your job as the church is joining with the elders in that task in silencing false teachers. So our passage is verse 10 and 11, and I just want to go back and read verse 9 with it so that we pick up a little bit of the context as Paul is talking about the qualifications for an elder. Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Father, as your people, we gather together under the authority of your word and we pray that we would find our church in order. Not in order according to a corporate business strategy, not in order according to the spirit of our age or our world, but in order according to the teaching of Scripture. And Lord, as we see Paul writing to Timothy and writing to Titus about how church ought to function and what are the responsibilities of pastors and what does that mean for the the responsibilities of a congregation. We pray that you would give us soft hearts and we pray that you would put our church into order. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This fall in October will mark my 17th year as a pastor. I became a pastor in my early 20s in Kentucky when I was finishing up my second stint in seminary. This April, just a few weeks away, April Fool's Day to be precise, will mark my nine-year anniversary to Manual. And some of you are thinking, I cannot imagine a better anniversary date than April Fool's Day. Nine years here at Emmanuel. And so as I think about 17 years being a pastor, almost a decade here at Emmanuel, I think without question one of the greatest challenges faced by pastors in the United States of America, and I say this because of my own conviction, and I say this because I talk with other pastors, is the absolute onslaught and avalanche of false teaching 
that is available to people today, especially people living in the United States of America. It's available in part, especially when you live in the Bible Belt, because there are churches on every corner. And there are all sorts of people pastoring these churches, leading these churches, teaching in these churches, and you can hear all manner of teaching and doctrine and theology in these churches. I would even say to you that having traveled a decent bit outside of the Bible Belt, there are quite a few churches on this North American continent. And so there are a lot of opportunities, a lot of varieties of church available to people today. Add to that technology, the internet. You can find anything that you want to hear about God and the Bible and Jesus and salvation on the internet. If you want to hear it, you can find it, and you can be confirmed in your rightness or your wrongness about those things. The internet has made an expert out of everyone. Pastors aren't the only people who have to battle this. Those of you who are in the medical profession, doctors and nurses, I'm quite certain you regularly have people who come into your office and they self-diagnose and they say, hey, I was on Google and I know what's going on. So this is what I need you to do. If you look at the fields of counseling and psychology and psychiatry, they have and are largely moving away from diagnosing patients and moving to a position of simply affirming patients. There's not really a place for diagnosis anymore. It's just affirmation of what somebody thinks they have or they're struggling with and what their treatment plan ought to be. If you know lawyers or if you know CPAs, you know that they regularly have people who come into their offices and they give them brilliant insight that they got from Uncle Jimmy or some Reddit article they found online, and they say, hey, I've figured out how to do this, how to maneuver around the law, how to finagle this or get out from under this obligation. The Internet has made everyone an expert, and that's certainly true when it comes to religion because you can get online and you can find somebody who will affirm whatever it is that you want to believe or whatever it is that you've been taught. I think it's good when you think about the challenge of that. I think it's good for me when I think about the challenge of that to remind myself and to remind ourselves of some of the wisdom we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes if You've been with us on Wednesday nights recently. The book of Ecclesiastes says there really is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Human, human beings are the same. They've always been sinful. They've always devised evil. There's always been false teaching. And the book of Ecclesiastes warns us, young and old, do not say that the old days were better than the present days. Don't talk about the good old days. You can talk about them, but don't talk about them, Ecclesiastes says, as if they were actually better. And the book of Ecclesiastes says it's not from wisdom that you say this. It's actually a foolish thing to be nostalgic and to reminisce about the past as if it were a perfect time. So with those warnings in mind, I, I sat down and I thought about the New Testament and I very quickly reminded myself, and I want to remind you, that there is quite a lot of false teaching within the New Testament itself. I don't mean that the New Testament gives you false teaching, but it talks about false teachers of all sorts of varieties. For example, there are antinomians, antinomianism, that says if you're covered by God's grace, you can do whatever you want to do. It's false teaching. The New Testament talks about it. There's legalism, legalists, these are the people who say, if you want to be saved, you must do this 
thing. That would be the circumcision party that Paul mentions in the verses that we just read. You must do that thing if you want to be saved. There are also ascetics, asceticism. They're the exact opposite of the legalist. They say, if you want to be saved, you can't do this one thing. The legalists say, you have to do this one thing. The ascetics say, no, you can't do that one thing. There's moralism. That was prevalent in the church in Galatia. Come to God, confess your sins, Jesus will forgive you, and then it's basically up to you from that point on to be a nice person, to be a good person. There's docetism. That's the false teaching that Jesus did not really come in the flesh, that he was not really fully and truly human. There's the false teaching of mysticism. People who rely on their dreams and their visions and their experiences and their hunches over the clearly written and revealed Word of God. And there's naturalism, which would be the opposite of supernaturalism. People will say there are no miracles, there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection. This life is it. Just try to be a good person and play the church game while you're here, and then when you die, you're gone. All sorts of false teaching within the New Testament. You know, 500 or so years before Jesus was born, there was a Chinese general named Sun Tzu, and he wrote a book called The Art of War. And in that book, Sun Tzu said, if you want to be victorious in battle, you have to know yourself and you have to know your enemy. You have to know yourself and you have to know your enemy. Politicians have figured this out. They employ massive machines of people to do opposition research to understand who it is they're up against. Coaches, athletic coaches, understand the value of this. They don't only come up with a game plan for their team, but they study film and they make their team watch the opponent and they say, you got to learn for this, you got to watch for this, you got to understand this man's tendencies, you got to know what this team is inclined to do, you got to know yourself and know your enemy. I think Paul wanted the same thing to be true of Titus and of the churches on Crete and by implication of our elders and our church. He wants us to know who we are, but he also wants us to understand the enemy, specifically false teachers. So what did Paul want Titus to understand about false teachers? Number one, there are many of them. They are many. He doesn't say to Titus that there are a few folks you need to be aware of, but he says there are many people, Titus, many people who fall under this category of false teachers. Living in the Bible Belt in the United States of America, you do not have the luxury of assuming that everyone who talks about the Bible, talks about God, and says they love Jesus is orthodox in their teaching and their theology. You don't have that luxury. Now, you don't need to be on a witch hunt constantly looking for false teachers and being skeptical about everyone, but you need to be aware that there are many Many false teachers. Secondly, they're insubordinate. Insubordinate. You could say they're insubordinate towards the leadership of their church. You could say they're insubordinate to the authority of a congregation. But ultimately, what they're insubordinate to is the authority of God's Word. And they're twisting and they're perverting the Word of God to their own ends. They're insubordinate in rejecting the authority of Scripture. Thirdly, they're empty talkers. Empty talkers. It's amazing how some pastors and authors and YouTubers and TikTokers 
can say absolutely nothing in a whole lot of words. Sometimes there's really not much to critique or criticize because there's absolutely nothing there. And it makes people feel good for a moment, for some reason, but there's really no substance to it. It's kind of like trying to nail jello to the wall. What are you going to criticize in that? There's nothing there. They're empty talkers. Number four, they're deceivers. They deceive themselves and they deceive others. They're not unlike the devil, who is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. Number five, they upset families, meaning that false teaching spreads. It's cancerous. It never stays contained. It never stays in just one place. But it always spreads first to a family and then to a Sunday school class and then to a church and then to a community. It spreads. Lastly, they're greedy for gain. They're greedy for gain. Certainly, Paul is warning Titus about those who would be greedy for financial gain. And I would simply add to that in our celebrity culture that many times the loudest voices and the most charismatic personalities end up being religious Christian celebrities. Now, they're not A-listers, and they're probably not B or C-listers, but within the weird little evangelical community, there is such thing as a Christian celebrity. And many people are greedy for financial gain, but also for gain and fame related to celebrity. So those are six truths that Paul lays out. It's not complicated. He just says them to Titus, details them out in verse 10 and 11. The question is, what do we do about it? What are elders called to do specifically in response to these many false teachers And by implication, what is the church to do as the church comes alongside following their elders and supporting their elders? I'm going to give you two Bible answers, just to be very transparent with you. Two two answers straight out of the Bible, straight from the text. And then I'm going to give you four more answers that are really like application and taking what Paul says to Titus here in this passage and applying it to our current day situation. So, number one. How do elders in the church silence false teachers? We must hold to the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. I'm pulling that from Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where it says that an elder, an overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. I'm pulling it from Jude, chapter 1, verse 3, where Jude says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but because many false teachers have crept into the church, I found it necessary to write to you, urging you to contend for the faith that has once for all time been delivered to the saints. Jude says you have to fight, contend, that faith. Some of you might remember the very first sermon I preached at Emmanuel was from the book of Jude. And we talked about contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the same idea as Titus chapter 1 verse 9. We must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is a responsibility of an elder. It means for an elder there's got to be a baseline of intellectual competency and comprehension to understand what is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And there's got to be some ability in an elder to communicate that with some measure of skill. 
as a church, we are called together to hold to the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. We are called week after week after week to talk about the holiness of God. God being our creator. God being sovereign over all that exists. We're called as a church to remind ourselves over and over and over again that we are sinful people. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. We're called to sing and to remind ourselves through preaching and teaching week after week after week that Jesus lived and he died and he was raised from the dead that sinners like us might have eternal life. That our sin debt might be forgiven and erased and that we might be brought into God's family. And we're called to say over and over and over again that the only means of salvation, the only way that you can receive that gift from God is to repent of your sin, agree with God about your sin, and put your faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Secondly, this is the challenging part, we must rebuke those, or you could say silence, rebuke those who contradict the gospel and teach what they ought not to teach. Verse 9 says that you have to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Verse 11 says that these people must be silenced. Certainly that doesn't mean going around with a roll of duct tape and wrapping around mouths, but it means within the church... False teaching has to be, to quote the great Barney Fife, nipped in the bud. Silence these people. Rebuke these people. Don't just stand back passively and hope it doesn't spread and hope it goes away, but deal with it head on. You don't have to be like a bull in a china cabinet. You don't have to be hateful and cruel and mean to people, but you have to rebuke these people and you have to silence these people. I bet you have heard someone like me stand on a platform like this at some point and say something along these lines. As Christians, we ought to be known for what we're for more than what we're against. Positively, for what we believe in more than negatively what we're against. I'll be honest with you, I think I've said that in this church at some point in time. And as I thought about it this week and as I read this passage, I said to myself, this is an oversimplification. And it's a false choice. We don't have to make a choice between one of these two. We don't have to choose. It's not like there are only two paths. Let the world know what we're for or let them know what we're against. And you can pick one or two, A or B. It's it's not that kind of choice that's put before us. And it's an oversimplification. It's a, a falling short in gospel integrity for people who live in a secular culture to say, we don't want to speak out against anything. We just want to speak positively for what we believe in and what we're for. That's an abdication of gospel responsibility. Cannot remain silent. Should have no expectation that the world will always have an understanding about what we're for. They're the world. They're lost. 
And we have to be clear about certain things that we're against. I think what Paul's calling us to, I think what the Bible is calling us to, is to walk and chew gum. Before certain things, and be clear that you are against certain things. There are certain things that have to be silenced within the church. There are certain things that have to be rebuked within the church. I thought about this over the last week or two. This is not from Titus 1. This is just from me. So you can do with this what you want. I'm just telling you from my perspective as a pastor, visiting with you, interacting in our culture, these are what I think are the three greatest challenges to the church today when it comes to gospel faithfulness and it comes to issues within the church that we have to silence and or rebuke. The first is the doctrine of Scripture. Do we truly believe that the Bible is inerrant in its content, that it is authoritative in its message, and that it is sufficient for life and godliness within the church? Do we believe that, yes or no? Because there are many, there are many, many who masquerade as leaders within churches who do not believe that. When you go to their church, they will say to you, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Absolutely. Who doesn't? But when you really boil it down to the nuts and bolts, they do not believe that the Bible is true, that it's the final authority for faith and practice, and that it is sufficient for the life and the godliness of the church. Secondly, anthropology. What is a man? What's a woman? What's marriage? How do we think about gender and how do we connect it or disconnect it from biological sex? And who gets to define what it means to be a human being? Those are pressing challenges and we do not have the luxury about remaining silent and only saying, well, we're for this. We have to be for certain things. But we also have to be clear that we're against certain things. The third one I would present you with is the prosperity gospel. And I think it exists in bold flavors and subtle flavors. The bold flavors are the crazy guys on TV, the crazy guys in our own town, who just openly say to you, if you love God enough, if you have enough faith in Jesus, you'll have enough money, you'll never get sick, everything will be wonderful. That's the bold variety. The subtle variety is much more common in our circles, and it says that you can use God to make your life better. That God exists to make your situation more pleasant, more comfortable, easier. It's not as crass and it's not as bold as the, the televangelist types, but it's the same underlying message. And I think what Titus 10 uh, 1, 10 to 11 is saying to us is that as elders and as a church, we have to come together and we have to be for certain things, but we also have to stand against certain things, and certain things have to be silenced and they have to be rebuked. So those are two answers from the text. Let me just give you four more, really by way of application. We must remember that every story conveys a worldview. 
Every story conveys a worldview. And I listed out books and I listed out movies. I'd like to add to that social media. Because social media is a story. A story written by lots of different people in little bitty tiny nuggets. It's a story. Just like a book, just like a movie, just like a TV show. And what I'm saying to you is that living in an entertainment culture like we live in, we're constantly being told stories. Stories. Stories on Netflix. Stories on Amazon. Stories on Facebook. Stories on Instagram. Stories with words. Stories with pictures. Stories with video. Constantly taking in stories. Stories form, in every culture, stories form the basis of a worldview. And every story that you listen to or read or take in, every story is saying something to you about this is good or it's bad, this is right or it's wrong, this is something you should seek or you should run away from, this is ultimate, this is less than ultimate. Those are all worldview questions. They're shaping the way that you think about the world. And what I'm saying to you is that there are no neutral stories. Sometimes people say to me, oh, we went and watched this movie. It's good. You could take the whole family. There's no cussing in it. You understand, you can present an unchristian worldview without using four-letter words. And many people have the filter of, well, what's the rating? Or what's the, what's the number, the word count on, on bad language? And there's no understanding that that story is pressing in on your heart and your mind a worldview. There are no neutral stories. And as you think about our responsibility when it comes to false teaching, you just have to be aware of that. I have to be aware of that. Every worldview, every story conveys a worldview. Next, we must be thoughtful with speakers, studies, books, and songs. And I'm specifically thinking about within our church family. Who do we let speak and preach and teach? Who do we bring in for a conference? Who do we let perform a wedding in this building? Who do we let preach a funeral in this building? I'll promise you this. You can go to one bad funeral and undo 20 good sermons that quick. What Bible studies are we going to host? What books? What authors? What churches are they a part of? If people go down that rabbit hole, what else are they going to find? We have to be thoughtful about this. What books are we going to put in our library as recommended resources? What songs are we going to sing in this room? You understand, that's teaching. The teaching in this service doesn't start when I get up and start talking or Corey gets up to start talking. It starts the moment you walk in this room. Teaching. Teaching through words and teaching through music and song. What songs are we going to sing? How accurate are they? What do the authors of those songs mean by the words that they write? Do they mean the same thing that we mean? What churches, what movements are they a part of? We have to be thoughtful about these things. Last, we must care more about the truth than being popular and accepted by the world. And we must resist the temptation to treat church and religion as consumer goods. And I want to talk about these two together. We have to care more about the truth than being popular, liked. We have to resist the temptation to treat church and religion as consumer goods. Let me just be honest with you for a minute. Honest facts. 
if a church sets out to silence and rebuke false teachers, it will make you very unpopular. There will be certain people who will love you for it. I'm not saying that everyone in the world is going to hate your guts. I'm saying it will make you unpopular. It will make you unpopular with people within the church, people who attend worship on a Sunday morning, and it will make you unpopular with people outside of the church. And I would say to you, as an elder, pastor, overseer, this is one of the hardest parts of serving in this role. And I'm not asking for anybody's pity. I'm not. But I'm just being honest with you to say, pastors are like everyone else. They want to be liked. You want to be liked. Everyone wants to be liked on some level. It's just a universal human longing. And I'm telling you that as a a pastor, elder, overseer, as a member of a church, as a group together, if we set out to silence and rebuke false teaching, we will not be liked by many. We will not be liked by many. People get mad when you silence false teaching. It's a strange thing. Most people who attend church have an idea that there is false teaching out there somewhere but they have never imagined the possibility that what their grandma said wasn't right or what their pastor said wasn't right or that they might be wrong and need to be silenced or rebuked. People take it as a personal affront, and I think one of the reasons they take it as a personal affront is that in the United States of America, church, religion, God, Jesus, these are consumer products to us. We're consumers in the United States of America. We like choices. Go to the grocery store. How many choices of bread do you have? How many choices do you need? How many do you have? How many types of detergent are there? I went to the grocery store yesterday without my wife, with my eight-year-old son, and we stood on the detergent aisle and said, do you know which one it is? I don't know which one it is. Does it look like that? What color is it? Is it blue or is it green? I can't remember. I don't know. Lots of choices, isn't there? Churches on every corner. Podcasts of every variety. We're consumers. And consumers do not like to be criticized for their consumer choices. Case in point. Imagine that next week when you come to church, I have Corey and Chris and Jason and Ron... Jake, posted out in the foyer, and as you walk in, they stand there to criticize your consumer choices. And as you walk in, they say to you, still driving that Ford? Really? A Ford? You, you decided to wear that shirt again this morning? Sure wear that shirt a lot. Might want to think about that. You're still going with that hairstyle? I won't say that to you, but some of the other guys might say that to you. Really? You don't think it's time to... I don't know. Are you still using that cell phone company? Don't you think you should switch? Are you still getting your cable from Grande? Are you serious? Don't you know it's 2023? You haven't gone to... You would never come back. You'd never come back. Rightly so. But many people 
whether they realize it or not, treat church and God and Jesus and the things they think about the Bible and salvation is no different than a consumer good. They're only going not to actually hear from the Word of God, but to hear what they already believe. And if you challenge that in the slightest way, they're gone. How do we combat this? How do we, how do we walk against those cultural headwinds? How do we make any ground as a church in a culture like ours that's rife with false teaching and that treats all of these things as nothing more than laundry detergent or bread? Well, Paul's laying it out for us right here. He's saying to Titus, I want you to put the church into order. The first step in that, Titus, is right leadership. Now, we'll get to the right doctrine and we'll get to the right living, but the first step is you've got to have right leadership, Titus. And that requires elders, pastors, overseers. That requires leadership and a church following that leadership that cares more about the truth than being right or popular with the world. Than being approved and applauded by the world. That requires a willingness even though none of us like confrontation and all of us want to be liked, a willingness to silence false teachers and to rebuke false teachers. And notice in the text, he doesn't just say rebuke and silence the false teaching, but he says it in verse 9 and verse 11, it's the teachers that have to be rebuked and silenced. Yes, we want to be for certain things, but we also have to be clear that we're against certain things. You understand that this little row of kids in the second service, you should come sometime if you don't ever come, just to watch this front row of kids get after it. In a blink, they will be our leaders. You're going to blink, and those kids dancing on the front row are going to be teaching adult Sunday school. They're going to be serving as elders in this church, deacons in this church, leading women's retreats in this church. It's going to happen before you know it. And our desire is that when that blink happens, that those young people, our young people, are for certain things and that they're against certain things. And guess what? The things that they're going to have to be against are not going to be exactly the same as the things we have to be against. So they need a model from us of what it means to be for something and what it means to be against something. What does it mean to take your stand on the authority of Scripture? What does it mean to understand basic concepts like what is a man and a woman and what is marriage? What does it mean to be honest in a therapeutic culture about sin and human depravity? And what does it mean in a postmodern culture that doesn't believe in truth to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through Him? Our aim is a generation who will not seek to use God for their own agenda, but will desire to be used by God, who will love the church, who will make disciples, and who will do it all for the glory of God.